beloved, two times uh, that opening question, that uh, opening Lord's Day, rather, asks us about comfort. And some have objected that, uh, that this is really, this is altogether too man-centered, that this places the emphasis too much on us, and, and it would be much better to begin with a, a question like, uh, what is the covenant, or uh, who is God, what is justification? But it's inappropriate to make so central the need that man has for comfort. But of course, this gospel comfort is a central theme of the Bible. And so if we want to make the accusation that the catechism is too individualistic, then much of the Bible's story and much of what we find in our other Reformed confessions would be liable to that same charge. We read in the very beginning of the Bible about Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis chapter 3, and then God comes to them with that first gospel promise, that first revelation of salvation. And the way that our Belgic Confession speaks of that is that God, in his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing the misery into which man had plunged himself, set out to find him. Though man trembling all over was fleeing from him, and he comforted him, promising to give him his son. It speaks of the first revelation of the gospel as a revelation of comfort. And we see that same thing in the prophets where Isaiah 40, which we just sang, speaks of the coming of Christ as a revelation of comfort. Isaiah 52, which we heard in our call to worship, does the same. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, proclaiming peace and glad tidings, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And then it says, break forth into joy, for God has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And so it actually speaks of of the proclamation of the gospel and of Christ's coming as God comforting his people. Uh, Jeremiah 31, likewise, in the context of the promise of the new covenant, speaks of God comforting his people and turning their mourning into joy. Uh, Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, speaks of Christ coming into the world as the consolation of Israel. And the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, speaks of Christ coming again and of the new heavens and new earth for which we long as the time when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death and there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. And so the Bible comes to us in the context of a world that is under the curse, as, as we sang prior to our service in, in number 153, of, of, of weary nations, those who are, are weary with the groaning of this world. The Bible comes to us in, in that context, the context of, of a people who are yet groaning and waiting and weary. It says the good news of what God has done for you in Christ is a comfort. In fact, it's your only comfort in life and in death. And our catechism rightly understands that and and so begins with this gospel comfort in Lord's Day 1 of which Ursinus, one of the catechism's authors, said the design of the doctrine of the catechism and of the doctrine of the church is our comfort and salvation. 
And so as we come especially to the, the central section of the Catechism on salvation in Lord's Days 5 through 31, this theme of comfort is everywhere. And when it speaks of God's providence, it does so in terms of how this brings comfort. When it speaks of God as Father, it, it does so in terms of how that helps us in this veil of tears. And it speaks of the incarnation. It speaks of, of how, that, um, how that benefits me. When it speaks of his descent into hell, it applies that to attacks of deepest dread and temptation, assuring me that Christ has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. When it speaks of his resurrection, it wants us to know how that benefits us. When it speaks of the ascension, it wants us to know that we have an advocate in heaven who will take us, his members, to himself. When it speaks of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead, it asks, how does this comfort you? And it points to Christ casting all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but taking me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and the glory of heaven. When it speaks of the Holy Spirit and our future resurrection and everlasting life, it speaks of how each of these comfort us. The same is true of the sacraments, which benefit, assure, and nourish us. There is a concern to take the truths of the gospel and apply them to our hearts to bring comfort. That's why your sign has said the design of the doctrine of the church is our comfort and salvation, which is not man-centered, but reveals God's concern in the gospel to give us comfort in this veil of tears. So look with me this afternoon uh, first at the need that we have for comfort, as we see that in Romans 8. And then we'll look at God's provision of comfort in the gospel and uh, the way to know this comfort in believing the gospel. Uh, first, the need that we have for comfort. And we see this in verses 18 through 25 of Romans 8, where it describes the state of this world after the fall. Uh, verse 18 speaks of of the sufferings of this present time, verse 20, of the creation being subjected to futility and of the bondage of corruption, and in verse 21, which creation itself longs to be delivered from. Verse 22 speaks of, of the groanings and the birth pangs. Verse 23, of how not only creation is groaning, but we ourselves these eight verses cover the whole gamut of suffering in this fallen world under the curse where there's groaning. And it reminds us that God knows, that God sees. It reminds us that he is aware of the suffering that we experience in this life. Uh, that's why, why we read of this kind of groaning all throughout the Bible. You think of a place like um, Exodus chapter 2 where Israel is under bondage and it says that God heard their groaning and his, or th their cry came up to him and he heard it. We read the same thing, almost the exact same language in the book of Judges several times. We read of it in the Psalms where somewhere between 30 and 40% of them are laments and remind us that God hears us when we cry out. We read of it in the prophets. You think of a book like Lamentations. We read of it in a book like Job, where just a couple weeks ago in Job 23, we read of those words from Job where he said, my complaint is bitter and my hand is listless because of my groaning. Which chapter 24 then extends beyond just Job to the souls of the wounded who cry out and the dying who groan 
in the city. In many ways, you can say the book of Job is a book about groaning. In fact, I was thinking of how all of the different aspects of life under the curse that Lord's Day 1 speaks of are present in the book of Job. Now, Lord's Day 1 affirms the reality of death, right, in that opening question. It affirms the possibility of physical suffering as it speaks of our Father in heaven sometimes willing that a hair will fall from our head. It speaks of the devil's tyranny and of the curse that, that has come into the world as a result. And each of these things we see very clearly in the book of Job where he himself is, is near death and, and in some ways longing for it. His, his children have died. His servants have died. He, uh, he knows the physical pain of Lord's Day 1 as he is stricken with boils from the sole of his feet all the way to the crown of his head. Um, chapter 7 speaks of his flesh being caked with worms and his skin cracked and breaking out afresh. By chapter 30, he says that his skin has grown black and, and is falling from him. This is a man who is aware of death, a man who is aware of physical pain, the man who has experienced the tyranny of the devil, the Satan of Job 1 and 2, into whose hand he has given over, that Leviathan of Job 41. And because Job is so well acquainted with all of this, he is, he is groaning. He is lamenting, he is crying out like Paul says in Romans 8 and is in need of comfort. And the presence of a book like Job in the Bible or the presence of so many of those psalms in the Bible or, or the presence of a question like, like this in our doctrinal standards right at the very beginning teaches us that God knows. And he wants us to know this comfort. But as we've seen in the book of Job, this comfort will not come merely in the passing of time. This comfort will not come in, in, in the changing of circumstances or in the platitudes of his friends, but is only provided in the gospel of his Redeemer for whom he longs. Job chapter 19. That's the same thing that we see in Romans 8. In the midst of groaning, Paul does not point us to the philosophies of this age. He doesn't point us to the wisdom of the world or to the goodness of humanity as our comfort, but our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so look with me, verses 29 and following of Romans 8, at the provision of comfort in the midst of our groaning where Paul takes us all the way back before the beginning of time to God's foreknowledge. See that word, beginning of, of verse 29, for whom he foreknew or, or those whom he foreknew, which is not a knowledge of, of things that would take place in, in the future where God somehow chooses us on the basis of knowing that we would have faith, but this foreknowledge is of persons. Those whom he foreknew. This is personal. The idea is of God entering into a relationship with us even before time. Like God says of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's that kind of, of personal knowledge that Romans 8 is speaking of. Where based upon it, God predestines us, Romans 8 says, to be conformed to the image of his son. 
even though there is nothing in us that deserves to be lifted from the groaning of this present age, even though we, like Adam and Eve, were trembling all over and hiding from him, running from him in the opposite direction, he pursued us in his love, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And then accomplish that which he had chosen to do through calling us, not only in terms of of the external call of the gospel, but, but even the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, whereby he gives life to our dead hearts. You see, this salvation of which Romans 8 and Lord's Day 1 speak is all of God from beginning to end. He is the one who knew us in advance and predestined us, chose us in the Beloved, He is the one who calls us to the proclamation of the gospel and then enables us to respond to that call by by giving us the Holy Spirit and giving us new life that we might respond. And it then keeps us by that same spirit. The salvation is all of God from beginning to end. Having foreknown and predestined us, called us to the universal call of the gospel, effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, makes us respond to that gospel and it goes on to say how he justifies us. So we heard this morning, he makes us right. He, he makes us just before him, just as if we'd never sinned, but are clothed in the righteousness of the man of Psalm 1 who is blessed. And then it says that he will one day glorify us. In fact, this is such a sure thing that verse 30 actually speaks of it in the past tense. Those he also glorified. It is such a sure thing that those who have been called by the Holy Spirit and justified by the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ imputed to them that he speaks of our glorification in the past tense. Where we'll be conformed to the glorious image of his son where just as Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, his glory and his beauty will be imparted to us. This is the gospel of Romans 8, verses 29 to 30, that we belong to God through Christ, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and one day glorified. Did you notice, in in both uh, Lord's Day 1 and also in Romans 8, this gospel comfort uh, takes a, a thoroughly Trinitarian shape. In verses 31 to 34 of Romans 8, it speaks of how we are purchased by Christ who was delivered up for us all, his life not being spared, but was condemned so that we might not be, and then uh, rose from the dead. And it says he's now seated at God's right hand where he makes intercession for us. But then it goes on to speak of God the Father. When verses 35 to 39 will not allow any of the suffering that we experience in this life to separate us from him, but in fact, in verse 28, makes all things work together for our good. This is the same thing that we see in the catechism, where after speaking of how Christ has fully paid for all my sins and delivered me from the tyranny of the devil, it says that God the Father so watches over me that nothing can happen apart from his will. In fact, he makes all things, even my suffering, work together for my salvation. And then both Romans 8 and and Lord's Day 1 also direct us to the Holy Spirit, who in Lord's Day 1 assures me of eternal life, and in Romans 8, verse 26, helps me in my weakness, so that even when I do not know what to pray, it says that he himself is interceding for me, 
with groaning. Same word that, that it's just used several times right before that. Even when I am so weighed down by the suffering that Romans 8 and Lord's Day 1 affirm that I cannot bring myself to pray, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for me. And I've said this before, but part of the way that he does that, part of, of, of what Romans 8.26 is speaking of, in the Holy Spirit interceding for us with groaning when we cannot pray is the Psalms, which we looked at this morning, where the Spirit-inspired Word of Christ helps us in our weakness so that by taking up those Psalms gifted to us by the Spirit, we are able to pray even when we cannot pray. This is part of the way that the Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him to live in the way that Psalm 1 described for us this morning. The Holy Spirit helps me in doing that by making intercession for me and by giving me the book of the Psalms so that in my weakness I might still be able to come before God. And so the Son atones for, for our sins with his precious blood. The Father is, is pleased with that purchase and raises him up and then also gives us all things even making our suffering work together for our salvation, the Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes intercession for me even when I don't know what to pray. This, beloved, is real comfort. Quite different from the kind of comfort Job's friends tried to give him. Quite different from the kind of comfort some of those to whom Paul is writing in the book of Romans sought in obedience to the law. Quite different from the kind of comfort that others seek in the wisdom of this world or, or the comfort that those all around us seek in pleasure or relationships or family or education or whatever it might be. Social media, Twitter, friends at school, reputation in the eyes of others. None of these things can give us the comfort that we need in this sin-cursed world. Only the gospel of God, whose comfort is not only Trinitarian in shape, but also future in its orientation, as we see in, in Romans 8, that, that the fullness of this comfort, which is already given to us in part, will be fully known, verse 18, when the glory to come is revealed, which Paul says makes our present sufferings not worthy to be compared you see, Romans 8 is looking at our suffering through the lens of the promise of the gospel and of our future redemption and adoption and glorification and saying what gives you comfort in the midst of the groaning of this age is the hope of the glory to come. Which again is, is precisely the same thing that we see in the book of Job, where in the midst of his own groaning, it is the hope of his Redeemer um, progressively revealed in, in, in Job 9 and then 16, eventually Job 19, that great climax of faith. It is hope in that Redeemer that gives him comfort in the midst of his groaning, the hope of the glory of the age to come for which we eagerly await, verse 25, with perseverance, again, strengthened by the Holy Spirit who assures us of eternal life and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready until then to live for him. You see the comfort of Romans chapter 8. 
Do you see the comfort of the gospel? Do you see why Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52 and Jeremiah 31 speak of it as comfort? Why Simeon in the temple spoke of it as the consolation of God's people? Because it is the promise that even though we had plunged ourselves into both physical and spiritual death and made ourselves completely miserable and completely unlovable, God did not leave us in our misery, but he set out to find us and to promise us, even though we did not deserve that he would give us his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make us blessed. That's how Belgian Confession, Article 17, speaks of the promise of the gospel. And just like Lord's Day 1, it speaks of it as a comfort. God provides for us comfort by caring for our greatest need and every lesser need in the gospel of his son. That comfort which he provides that the catechism is going to unfold as it speaks of these things over the next 52 Lord's Days. And question two really, really gives us an outline for how it's going to do this. It, it says that it, it will address our sin and misery. It will address our deliverance from sin and misery. And it will address how we are to thank God for such deliverance. If you want to know this comfort, you must know these three things. How great your sin and misery are. How you are delivered from your sin and misery. And how you are to thank God for such deliverance how you are to praise and glorify him in response to what he's done. I just want to spend the the time that we have left on that second question. And we've considered the need for comfort in the midst of the groaning of this sin-cursed world. We've considered the provision of comfort in the gospel of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who plan, purchase, and apply our redemption. Lastly, we consider uh, the way to know this comfort. Perhaps you're here this afternoon and you don't know this comfort. You know something of the groaning of Romans 8, 18 to 25. You know something of the suffering of this present age, but you do not know the comfort of belonging to Christ and being assured of eternal life. Of being assured that, that even the suffering that comes upon you, your Father is superintending for your good. If you do not know that comfort, that the catechism wants you to know it. We want you to know it. God wants you to know it. And so he reveals in his word the way for you to know this comfort. There are three things you must know to live and die in the joy of this comfort. Which actually the book of Romans develops for us quite nicely. So if you, you turn back just a few pages, if you're still open there to Romans 8. If you turn back just a few pages to Romans 1, 2, and 3. Uh, we see in those opening chapters of this book are sin and misery. Where even though God has revealed himself to us, Romans 1.18 through 20 tell us he's, he's revealed himself to us in a general revelation. Even though he has done that, those verses say, Romans 1.18 to 20, that man suppresses the knowledge of the truth and does not glorify God but it goes on to say man turns to empty idols. It is given over then to the lusts of the flesh in Romans one twenty six and following, where God lists all of these ways in which we sin. We sin sexually. It speaks there even of, of unnatural uh, homosexual relations. It, it speaks of our covetousness. It speaks of envy, of murder, strife, of, of gossip, boasting, of disobedience to parents, 
of being unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And then in chapter 2, it it turns to the Jews and says, oh, uh, by the way, this is not just the Gentiles, but it's you as well. And Paul says, your ceremonies cannot save you. Your circumcision and your sacraments cannot save you. Your mere membership in the visible church cannot save you. But as he says in Romans 3, verses 9 to 20, that long string of Old Testament quotations, uh, bringing the law and the prophets to witness, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. They have all together become evil and therefore deserve the judgment of God. We deserve hell. This is what it means when it says the first thing we must know is how great our sin and misery are. But then the book of Romans, uh, beginning at chapter 3, verse 21, going all the way through chapter 11, turns from sin to salvation and tells us how we are delivered from this sin and misery. Through the righteousness of God revealed apart from the law by grace through Christ, who was the only man not guilty of, of the sin and misery of Romans 1 through 3. And it says that God set him forth as a propitiation or, or an atoning sacrifice, absorbing the wrath of God to pay for our sins through his death on the cross so that we might be justified, Romans chapter 4, by faith, saved from the wrath of God through Christ, as we heard in Romans 5 and our assurance of pardon this morning, set free from sin and given the gift of God, which is eternal life, Romans 6, freed, Romans 7, from the condemnation of the law so that there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, but we are joined to the people of God, Romans 9, 10, and 11, grafted onto that great olive tree as we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, having sent Christ to atone for our sins. That's the message of the central section of the book of Romans, after which the catechism is patterned, which then leads us into Romans 12, where we're told how we must thank God for such deliverance, where we're told how this salvation leads to service, where uh, Paul says, I alluded to it this morning in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in other words, by everything that you've just heard in the last eight chapters, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 introduce that next section of the book, chapters 12 through 16, where you're told that by the mercies of God, in view of what he has done for us in the gospel, we must live our lives for him out of gratitude. We must offer our very lives and our very selves as a, um, an offering to him, a sacrifice to him of worship and of praise. Not in order to know this comfort, but because you have been given this comfort. And the rest of Romans 12 through 16 walks us through what this life of gratitude looks like. Romans 12, it looks like using your spiritual gifts within the body of Christ to serve others. It looks like loving your enemy 
At the end of Romans 12, it it looks like submitting to authority. Romans 13, it looks like respecting Christian liberty. Romans 14, it looks like bearing others' burdens. Romans 15, and welcome each other as God has welcomed you. And it looks like working for the spread of the gospel, even where Christ has not been named. This is the natural response to the comfort that we have just been given in Romans 8. And the burden of this opening Lord's Day is to help you know that comfort. To help all of us know that comfort. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and delivered me from the tyranny of the devil and so watches over me that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. As we heard this morning, to to, uh, live in the way that Psalm 1 describes, the way that is the way of blessing, the way of delight, the way of comfort. And we know this comfort by understanding the greatness of our sin and misery, the enormity of our sins, even as we sang this morning from Psalm 25, where where David doesn't doesn't make any qualifying statements about his sin, but he says, Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is very great. We know this comfort by coming to, to know ourselves in that same light, our sin and misery. And then understanding the way of salvation that is laid out for us in the word of God and responding in faith and repentance as Romans 10 explains and then letting that repentance be ongoing throughout our whole Christian life as we strive more and more to live for him and to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So we're going to look at over the next 52 Lord's Days as God brings us back to the fundamentals of the Christian faith to give us comfort. Comfort that offers life and salvation to those who are outside of Christ. A comfort that offers hope in the life to come for those who who are in Christ and yet are groaning in this present age. Who know well the suffering that Romans 8 speaks of. A comfort that offers assurance to those who are near death as well as to those who are not. And a comfort that compels us, as we heard in our opening salutation, to bring this comfort with which we have been comforted to others as we respond to this salvation in the way of service that is laid out for us in Romans 12 through 16. May God give us grace to do that, even as we heard this morning, to walk in the way of Psalm 1 the way of Romans 12, 1 and 2. And may he equip us in this new season of learning for Christ's sake. Amen.